Well, good evening, City Light You. If I've not met you yet, my name is Justin McKay, and I am one of the worship pastors here at City Light, and I'm so thankful to be here. Well, over the years, I've met a lot of people, and I've met a lot of people express to me their objections and grievances to Christianity. And more times than not, the complaint is something like this. Christians are simply too judgmental. Or I'll never go back to church because church is just a place full of hypocrites. Or maybe you've heard this. Well, if the Bible says not to judge, then why do Christians act like they're better than everybody? And to be honest, hearing those thoughts breaks my heart. Because I love the local church. I love my faith. I love following Jesus. And I believe the local church is the hope for a broken and dark world. But I'm also wise enough to know that the church is full of imperfect people. And I also know that there are legitimate concerns that people have against the church. And I know that Christians have hurt other people with their words and with their actions. It's simply true. And the stats don't lie. People are leaving the church more than ever today in America. And I've often wondered if the accusations and the statements that I've heard about the church actually are true and actually are the reasons why people are leaving. Are Christians really too judgmental? Are we actually a place full of hypocrites? And does the Bible really say that we should never judge someone else? And I'm sure you've heard the same things too and maybe asked the same questions. Is this really true? Of the American church? Is this really true of the church that I go to? Is this true of me? Or you might even be someone who's been hurt by the church. You may be even a believer that has a wound from another Christian or another leader in the church. And if that's you, I just want to say I'm sorry. I can't begin to understand your pain or understand what you went through, but I just want you to know that I'm sorry if that happened to you. And I just want you for a few moments to kind of lean in, hear me out, and maybe hear what Jesus has to say about hypocrisy and what it means to not judge as a believer. So just bear with me and hear me out. And that leads me to our big idea, what I want to talk to you about tonight. And tonight, I simply want to express what Jesus teaches about judgment. Jesus simply teaches that we should not judge others, simply. But rather, we should be judging ourselves. And we continue the Sermon on the Mount series. So if you have your Bible, good news, we're going to learn about what Jesus has to say about this. So grab your Bibles. We're going to go to Matthew, the book of Matthew, starting in chapter 7, starting in verse 1. So let's dive right in. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. So the point of this passage is pretty clear, right? Jesus is simply instructing the audience, the people listening to him, simply not to judge. But what kind of judgment is Jesus talking about? Is the judgment that Jesus is talking about maybe the judgment you might find in a courtroom scene? Or maybe you might find from a referee making a judgment call? No. That's not what he's talking about. The judgment that Jesus is talking about is a judgment that looks like this. It's when someone 
places a negative evaluation on another person or when someone basically says or acts in a way that says, I am better than you. That is the judgment that Jesus is referring, for, referring to. And that teaching to not judge is relevant to the audience because the audience is very familiar with a group of people who do that very well. The Pharisees, the teachers of the day, love to judge. And they had this posture and position that they consistently held and believed about themselves. They really loved themselves and despised people. Jesus was talking to this group of people, the people that weren't Pharisees, about the Pharisees and simply saying, do not be like these people and live a life opposite of what you see in the Pharisees. So you might ask, was Jesus saying that his followers or the people listening to him in the crowd in the Sermon on the Mount, was he saying that they should never correct sin or correct someone of a wrong? And the answer to that is no. The judgment that Jesus is warning us against is negative fault-finding that is intended to harm others and elevate ourselves above others. That is what Jesus is talking about and what we should avoid. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You Hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. City so Light, you, I believe there's two observations in this section of the text that are helpful for us tonight. And observation number one is this Jesus is warning his audience to refrain from hypocritical judgments. That's pretty clear. And the text tells us that we can avoid hypocritical judgments. When we first take the log out of our own eye, then and only then can we see clearly. That leads us to our second observation. Jesus teaches there's an actual order if we're compelled to take the speck out of our brother's eye. It first begins with us looking at ourselves, removing the log. Then we are able to remove the speck from our brother's eye. That allows us to see Clearly, the purpose of this passage, hear me out, is not about whether or not his followers should refrain from correcting sin. The point of this passage to the audience that he is talking about, he wants his audience, his followers, to live a life that looks radically different than the judgmental hypocrites that the Pharisees tend to be. Jesus also wanted his audience to know that there was a better way in handling sin. There was a proper order when it came to handling sin, and he wanted his followers and his audience to see it. He wanted to see the heart, he wanted them to see the heart of the Father, how the Father handles sin. But these observations are pretty familiar, right? I said this repeatedly this week about this text. This is a softball text. It's pretty obvious what we need to take from here, right? Even the world would agree with this passage. Yeah, we're not supposed to judge each other. Why are you getting in my business, man? Don't judge me. You know that? We know that, but why do we fail to do it? If we know the instruction and the commandment is simple and clear, why do we fail? I think we fail because there are two extremes that you and I gravitate between when it comes to examining our sin. 
And so when we examine our sin, I want to give a, a term for it. And it's a term that you may know. It's called introspection. And I believe we live in two different worlds of unhealthy introspection. And the first extreme of unhealthy introspection is an area that only others can see and an area that we cannot see. It's called blind spots. A blind spot is when we're quick to point that out or this out in you. And that same sin that we're so prone to point out is a sin that we are overwhelmed with. That is a blind spot. It's something that only someone else can see in us. It's something that we can't see. For example, when I was a young worship leader, I was really good at discerning pride in other young worship leaders. For example, I would meet this guy and I'm like, yeah, he's talented, but he's just kind of a jerk. I don't think he's like really likes people. Or, yeah, I met this guy and I just think he thinks he's better than everybody. He's like really didn't give me the time of day. He's just a punk. Well, City Like You, God didn't give me a gift of being able to spot out pride. I was able to see pride and know the signs of pride because I was a prideful worship leader. And City Like You, what blind spots do so tragically well is that they give us a greater awareness to see certain sins more clearly than other sins while simultaneously blinding us from seeing the same sin we're so keen to finding in others. More times than not, the sin that bothers you the most in someone is the sin that usually is the one that you struggle with the most. Did you hear that? Well, the other extreme of introspection is what I like to call self-pity. It's the other end of our blind spots. It's the moments where we've actually practiced introspection, where we've actually thought about our sin. And what happens in an unhealthy way is we get in these pity parties. And what turns out to be a very healthy thing quickly turns into a very Christless pity party. And it becomes about ourselves. And these pity parties only deepen our depression about ourselves and we can find very little hope of escaping the thought of how messed up we are. Even more so, the danger in this extreme is that we become so self-absorbed with our sin that we leave little to no room for Jesus. Ultimately, if our introspection becomes centered about how jacked up we are, not about how great Jesus is, we're going to miss it. We cheapen the glory and the power of the cross and miss the blessing of the gospel when we make introspection about ourselves and not about Jesus. Altogether, city like you, Jesus is calling you and he's calling me to embrace introspection that is saturated and centered on the gospel. When we do that, we quickly see that our sin is there. And we quickly see the sin that held Jesus on the cross. But more importantly, we can quickly receive the forgiveness that we have in Jesus when we have healthy, gospel-centered introspection. So we have two unhealthy extremes. We have the area of where we have blind spots and like to point out sins and other people that we actually do the same thing. And the other end of that is these Christless pity parties 
where we're so wrapped up about, about how jacked up we are, we forget about how good Jesus is. So City Light you, what are we to do when we feel tempted to judge hypocritically? What do we need to do? Well, first, I think we need to stop when we feel that temptation, when we feel like we want to do that. We need to stop and do three things. Number one, we need to look at our own hearts. We need to look at the cross, and we need to look to God for help. We look at our own hearts. This is essentially what we learned before. Jesus calls us to examine our hearts first before we examine the heart of another person. A way that we can do this is to regularly invite people into our lives to speak truth, to point out blind spots, and to point out our weaknesses with grace and truth. This is probably also a good time for me to plug city groups and huddles. If you're not in a city group, I urge you to get in one now. This is a great place and area and avenue and arena for you to get into accountability, to get in community, to get to know other believers, and to realize how jacked up you are and you need people to point out your sin graciously and to help point you to the gospel. You need that. Well, you might be saying, Justin, I'm in a city group. Well... I want to tell you, you need to get in a huddle. A huddle is like a small city group, and it's like two, three, four. Are there five people in a huddle? Can five people in a Two, three, four people. Okay, two to four people in a huddle. That's like a really, really intense accountability group where you point each other to Jesus, you confess sin, you encourage each other, you minister to each other. These are great places for us to... Uh, reveal our sin, confess our sin, and help others, invite others in to speak truth to our lives. So if you're not in a city group, get in one. If you're in a city group and not in a huddle, get in one. John, Randall, and his team will help place you and find you one if you're not in one. Get in one today. It's helpful for us as believers to be in communities like that. So we look at our own hearts. That's number one. Number two, we look at the cross. City Light you, when we gaze at the cross, when we focus our minds and our hearts and our soul's attention on the cross, we can't help but be reminded of our own sin. Because it was our sin that placed him there. And secondly, when we gaze and put our focus and attention on the cross, we can't help but receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Looking at the cross also fuels healthy introspection. Remember, when the cross is in the center of those two extremes of pity party and blind spots, we have a healthy view of how to look at our own sin. So, we look at our own hearts, we look at the cross, and lastly, we look to God for help. After going through steps one and two, we have to land here. And in this area, we're simply asking, God, I need your help here. I need your guidance. I need your help to answer this question. God, I've been wronged. I'm frustrated. This thing bothers me. I've been wounded. God, do I need to confront this person or do I need to let it go? Do I need to approach them with grace and truth or do I just need to have common grace and let it go? That is the last step. In City Like You... In my time as a believer, when I've prayed about that, more times than not, 
God has answered the prayer, Justin, you need to let it go. You need to let it go. Because when we've prayed about it, when we have examined our own hearts, when we've uh, looked at the cross, more times than not, we will be so overwhelmed with our own sin and pursuit to be holy that we actually forget how we've been wronged or the annoying thing that we see in somebody. But I can guarantee you, if you pray that prayer regularly, there will be times where God leads you and compels you to confront someone about sin or wrongdoing or something that they are doing to harm themselves in their walk with Jesus. So what happens when God calls you and compels you to do that? Well, the good news is there's a biblical way and a Christ-like way to do that. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul gives some instructions for us on how to do that. So if you have your Bibles, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted. Again, brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Simply put, Jesus has given us instructions to restore our brothers and sisters with gentleness. And we're compelled to have a heart of concern, love, and grace because Jesus has shown us concern, love, and grace. And we respond in such a way because Jesus, Christ, has responded in such a way for us. And City Let You, I want you to hear this because we're going to have to confront and acknowledge sin in other people. That's just part of it because we love people. But I need you to hear that there is a proper way to do this. We expose sin with a purpose to restore others, not to, not to destroy others. We correct others to build them up, not to tear them down. And lastly, it's important for us to know this. We say hard things. We say things that are truthful with gentleness and compassion because we care about people, not because we're good at telling it like it is. There is a difference, and it's all about our tone. And it's all about whether or not we want to make Jesus look great or accomplish our agenda. There is a difference. I recently took a test for the Enneagram. I was kind of late on this boat. Yeah. Well, the Enneagram, if you're not familiar with it, is a personality test. And it's pretty crazy how accurate it is. And it basically classifies you, your personality, in a very basic way. And the results came back a few months ago, and it said, I actually pay for the test. I took the official test. It took about 30 minutes. And the results came back, and it said that I was a type 1 in the Enneagram. If you know anything about the Enneagram, a type one doesn't mean you're the best. It just means you're just type one, okay? So I'm not the best. It's just there's nine, there's nine types, and anyway, I'm type one. 
And so I, I, I continue to read the definition of a type 1. The type 1 is known as the reformer. And this is how they define a type 1. Type 1s are conscientious and ethical. And they also have a strong sense of right and wrong. They are teachers, they are crusaders, they're advocates for change, always striving to improve things. But they're also afraid of making mistakes. They're well organized and they're orderly, and they try to maintain high standards. But they also can slip into being very critical and perfectionistic. They typically have problems with resentment and impatience. It gets worse. According to this test, type 1s, when not in a state of emotional health, are highly dogmatic, self-righteous, obsessive about imperfection and the wrongdoing of others, often acting hypocritically like the Pharisees and doing opposite of what they preach. At their worst, ones can be condemning and cruel towards others. If not checked, ones can suffer from depression nervous breakdowns, or suicide. I wish I could tell you that description was wrong, that it wasn't accurate of me. But I'm afraid to say it is accurate of me. And it breaks my heart to read that description because it describes me well. And what breaks my heart even more is that those unhealthy characteristics of this personality type plagued my college years in my mid-twenties and even now. I remember being severely insecure, self-centered, and hypercritical of other people. And you mix that personality type with a personality type that's not afraid of conflict and that's very assertive. You mix those two things together and you can do a lot of damage. And if I'm honest with you tonight, I've done a lot of damage in my lifetime by being super critical and super assertive. I shudder at the memories of being super vocal, being very vocally critical of people to their faces and behind their backs. I might have been right in my mind, but my heart was rarely, if ever at all, in a place of godly correction or graciousness. It always came from a place of insecurity or pride. I might have had the right words, but I had the wrong heart and the wrong tone. I hurt so many people in college and in my mid-20s. And I missed so many opportunities to be a leader and to gain influence. But I was more concerned about pointing out where people missed it and how right I was. Simply put, I was a know-it-all punk who cared a lot about himself and very little about people. But thankfully, God has done a work in my life. In the last six years, he's been refining that hypercritical, that perfectionism type personality that I have. And has removed a lot of that type oneness in my heart. But more than that, I'm so thankful that God placed men in my life who mentored me, who did not give up on me, who pursued me, who called me on my crap, who loved me in spite of my weaknesses, who were there for me. For, and when they could have said, Justin, we're done with you. You need to get this whole thing, this super critical thing fixed, and we're just done with you. But they didn't say that. 
Do you have a person like that in your life that's willing to walk alongside you in spite of your crap? I'm so thankful that I did. I'm also thankful that God didn't give up on me. Thankful for the Holy Spirit that was walking alongside me, correcting that, refining that, shaping my heart, purging that perfectionism, those high standards that nobody else could meet and standards that I couldn't even meet out of my heart. I'm so glad that God didn't give up on me. But if that description, that type one personality, if that's you, because there might be somebody like that in here, there's hope for you too. And there's hope for all of us in this room. God's not done with us. His word promises that the work that he started, he will be faithful to complete. And if that's you today, and you refuse to change your ways, or you can't see how damaging a hypercritical attitude is, I want you to know the danger that you're going to face if you don't change, if you don't repent. A critical spirit left unchecked will only lead you to a stonewalling pride, maddening isolation, and deep, dark depression. It may not happen today, but it will happen if you don't check this. And again, there's hope. There's hope in repentance. There's hope in sanctification. God wants to change that, purge that out of you, and make you more like him. See, as I look across this room, I have a vision for this room. And if you would, would you just imagine for a moment this college ministry, this place, this room, this church, this group, would you imagine this? Could it be said of this group that this group is never a group that could be characterized with judgmental hypocrisy? And would it be said of this place and in this ministry that this ministry would be known for embracing a beautiful blend of grace and truth. I see this ministry being one that welcomes people as they are. There's the grace. But I also see this group as a place that doesn't leave people where they are. There's the truth. I also see this ministry as one that is characterized by great compassion. There's the grace. But I also see this group marked with Christ-like correction. There's the truth. And lastly, I see this ministry as one that echoes a tone that looks and sounds a lot like Jesus. And Jesus was full of grace and truth. And to the person that I mentioned earlier that has been hurt by judgmental and hypocritical Christians... Again, I'm sorry. I think all of us in this room are sorry that happened to you. Whoever hurt you, I just want you to know that they're a sinner. And we're all sinners in this room. We've all fallen short. And I don't say that to just flippantly justify or push aside what they've done to you. I say that to let you know that if you stay in this room we're ultimately, inevitably going to disappoint you. And you are going to inevitably disappoint us. That's human nature. 
we're all going to disappoint each other. And I say that to say, there's one person in this room that will never disappoint you. His name is Jesus. And I say that he's in this room because he is actually in this room. We believe the presence of Jesus is with us today. And we believe the presence of Jesus is living inside of every believer in this room. And I mentioned that he is here today because I want you to stop for a moment. If you've been hurt by hypocritical and judgmental Christians, if you have a wound from a past experience in church, I want you to stop and pause for one moment and speak to Jesus who is here in this room today and ask him and invite him in to heal that wound, to sew it back up, to gently restore you, and to help you walk in freedom from that bad experience. Also want to encourage this room of believers to strive to move close to the people that are hurting with those experiences. Listen well, move close, and lead with comp- uh, compassion and grace and truth. Again, if that's you, if you've been hurt, I'm sorry. But again, invite Jesus to heal that wound. He wants to. He wants to restore your faith in the local church. We want this community to be a place that looks a lot like Jesus. Amen. So let me wrap up by saying this. This is my charge and benediction to you. City like you, I believe God is preparing you to lead the way and removing the stereotypes that haunt Christians in the local church today in America. I believe you, this place, this church, this ministry, this group of people will be a city on a hill. I believe that you will shed a glorious light and an irresistible faith for the world to see. I believe that you will lead the way in initiating healthy biblical confrontation with each other And I believe that you will rewrite the negative narrative that many have with Christians and the local church. I believe you will be followers who are quick to examine yourself before you examine somebody else. And I believe that you will be slow to be tempted to judge and condemn others. I believe this group will embrace the gospel properly. And that you will all encourage each other to look at the cross to look at your own hearts and look to God for guidance. And I believe that you will have a healthy view of your sin and repentance where you put Jesus at the center of your introspection. Lastly, City Light You, I pray that you and I lead with truth. I pray that you and I lead with grace. And above all else, I pray that you and I lead with love, just like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our hypocritical, judgmental tendencies. Father, forgive us for the moments where we've wanted to dwell on other people's sin and not ours. Forgive us when we've missed it. Father, forgive us when we've removed you from our introspection, when we have these Christless pity parties, and there is no gospel at all. And we just feel sorry for ourselves. Forgive us for those moments. Forgive us for the moments where we just refuse to see our blind spots. 
Father, you have called us to live radically different than the world. You've called us to live radically different from the Pharisees and those who think they've got it all figured out. So, Father, we come to you today with a posture of, with open hands, confessing that we don't know what we're doing half the time, and we need you. We need you. And, God, again, I pray for that person that who, who might be wounded by the church or a hypocritical Christian or who's been judged in the past who just feels uncomfortable in this room. I just want you, Father, to wrap your arms around them. And God, I also pray that they feel your arms around them. God, I also pray for the person that's super critical. I pray for, the, I pray for me, the, uh, the 26-year-old me that's in this room that was super critical of other people that just really set a standard that nobody could live up to. I pray for that person who was like me at 26 that you would convict them, Father, that you would break them of that horrible, unchristian attitude and that you would lead them in a posture of truth and grace. God, again, like we said earlier, we can't do this without you. We don't want to be people that judge others. We want to be people that are totally focused on you. So, Father, again, like we said, when we're tempted to judge, would you help us to look at our own hearts? Would you help us to look at the cross? And would you help us look to you? God, we pray all this in Jesus' name.